coming up on Vermont This Week, a sweeping housing proposal pitched by lawmakers and backed by the governor. Housing is about more than just housing. It's about community revitalization, workforce, affordability, equity, health, safety, and much, much more. But even with tripartisan support, does the proposal have what it takes to solve the housing crisis? This as the debate continues over how to house the homeless after this winter. And House lawmakers give preliminary approval to overdose prevention sites in Vermont. What's next for the controversial proposal? From the Vermont Public Studio in Winooski, this is Vermont This Week. Made possible in part by the Lintelac Foundation and Milne Travel. Thanks for joining us on Vermont This Week. I'm Kat Villianzoni. Our panel today, Tim McQuiston from Vermont Business Magazine, Stephen Biddix from WPTZ and Vermont Diggers, Sarah Mirhoff, thank you all for being here today. Housing, the fight over how to create more of it while keeping the character of Vermont has been a fight at the State House for decades. But it's taken on extra urgency in the past several years as the housing market has gotten tighter and tighter. This week, Lawmakers in Montpelier unveiled a proposal to ease restrictions on multi-unit apartments that they say has tripartisan support. We can't buy our way out of this housing deficit. We must continue to remove obstacles that have limited housing for decades by modernizing our land use regulations. So Stephen, what would this bill do and do you think it has the support it needs from leadership in the House and Senate given uh, Senator Phil Baruth's comments after the State of the State about Act 250? That's been the hot topic really for months now. Ever since the end of last session, we had S-100 or the Home Bill passed, which did have some reform to Act 250, but for many, it just wasn't quite enough. And what they wanted to see is a lot more in this bill this time around. So the bill really does focus on Act 250 and municipality zoning laws. So within this designated downtown, such as Burlington, can become fully exempt from Act 250. And that even expands a little bit outside of downtowns where we used to have what was a 10-5-5 rule where 10 units built within five miles in five years would then trigger Act 250. But now they will be able to build roughly 30 units over a two-year period before Act 250 would be triggered. And they were also saying that Act 250 really started having the reverse effect of what it was supposed to, and it was making people have to spread out more and more to build, where now they can build more densely and build up instead of out. And Tim, what's your sense on these changes? Will they be enough to kickstart development? Well, you never know until after it happens. But, you know, as, as Stephen was saying, Act 250 has become a burden to development. We're kind of seeing it in the, in the housing really play out a lot. And what they want to do it, in, in sort of globally is get rid of the redundancy in, in some of the zoning and permitting aspects to this, where you could go through all the permitting. This happens a lot to developers and community members who want to see more housing or more development downtown. And then you run into another roadblock in the permitting process. So you go through all this legal, all the development, all the architecture, everything is played out. And then you hit another roadblock and it's more expense. And this is, you know, if you're against something, the legal process does this all the time where you just try and play, play it out until someone just gives up. And, and one of the things I was interested in, in this discussion was, is this gonna, as you mentioned, Kat, at the beginning, is this gonna play out politically? How's it gonna work in the 
in the state house does it have as you said the legs to get through Sarah, do you think it does? Yeah, I think there's certainly support for big-time um, legislation on housing this year. I think there's universal recognition. Like Representative Sims said in that clip that you just played, we can't buy our way out of this housing crisis. Also, building housing is more expensive than it's ever been right now. Um, and God knows that mortgages are really expensive for folks as well. Um, as far as though, like some of the politics within the building, we have seen that some of the natural resources legislative committees have been really hesitant to loosen Act 250 regulations. And that was actually something that Governor Scott noted in his State of the State speech. He said that a couple special interest groups and committees should not be able to hold up this legislation. So we're, I think we're really seeing those uh, interests come head to head this year. Just to break in on that, Sarah, too, is uh, you mentioned the mortgages, but also the expense. So the, you know, housing supplies, you know, if we'd done this yeah. a few years ago, interest rates were so much lower. We didn't have the supply chain uh, limitations. And, and, you know, I'm really curious about, you know, you mentioned the natural resources committees, and that's going to be a big issue, I think, Stephen, right? Yes, I mean, that's kind of one of the big things is how are you can, going to convince Senator Bray and some of those in the Senate of signing on to a bill like this that is going to drastically reform Act 250 and the environment. So the governor says the goal is to encourage development outside of the floodplains, flood which, you know, obviously we saw devastating flooding this summer for, you know, homes within floodplains in many cases. Uh, do you think that will resonate with lawmakers more, this bill, given the flooding we saw this past year and given some of the urgency around figuring out housing solutions that put people out of harm's way. Yeah, I think the flood has really reframed the, the housing debate at large. Actually, it was, I think, Senator Acacia Rum Hinsdale said during Wednesday's press conference, um, we've been thinking in Vermont about climate refugees and how, you know, 10 to 20 years down the line, as our coasts potentially come in and in, we may be having more people, an influx of people into Vermont. She said, reframed that narrative and said, we have climate refugees now within Vermont who their homes are inoccupiable anymore um, and that they need somewhere to live and that we need to really be thinking about this as we work on the housing crisis. And of course, you can't have a conversation about housing in Vermont this week without talking about the perennial question of what to do to help the homeless Vermonters. The budget extension proposes more funding for extending the hotel motel program, and the state's trying to negotiate a better deal to stretch those dollars further. As we're trying to negotiate lower rates, we actually have some hotel rooms raising their rates, and we have to make this very difficult decision of do we stop using that hotel um, and do we risk closing, closing it down and disrupting all of those people who are currently in the program, uh, or do we pay the higher rate? So, Stephen, how many people are still in that hotel-motel program, and what would the Scott administration's proposal do to transition them out? Yeah, so right now there's just over 1,100 people in the program, which equates to about 700 households, roughly. But the big thing is going forward is on April 1st, there's a group of them that are expected to be exited out of the program. It's in the hundreds. And so what the Scott administration is asking for and budget adjustment is for around $4 million to help create five emergency shelters in some of the most in need communities, such as Burlington, such as Rutland, such as central Vermont, which is kind of the Barry, Berlin, Montpelier area. And that's a short term fix. But as we just heard the DCF commissioner talk about, he also has discussed where they're going to hit a cliff eventually. And that cliff may be coming on this April 1st date because as we just discussed housing, housing is the key to solve all of this, but it's not easy and it's not quick to build housing. So the long-term plans I think are very still much up in the air. And he's also said it's going to be tough to get these emergency shelters ready by April 1st because we're what, three, four months away from that right now. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, Cotton Burlington told us this week that they've helped 600 different people over the past three months at their day station in Burlington. Their overnight shelters are at capacity. Um, with this April 1st deadline that you mentioned looming, places like Cots are being told to prepare for that higher demand as people exit uh, and need services. Do you think we'll see any sort of deal from lawmakers, um, Sarah, on, you know, a new aid plan before then? I think that they're going to have to answer for this issue in some way, shape, or form. The ultimate catch-22 that I think lawmakers are in right now is that this is a really expensive issue to solve at this point. We heard Chris Winters talking about how hotels and motels are raising their rates right now. And it, we're in the position where um, we got to pay those higher rates and pay that money um, or kick people out, which is, you know, a humanitarian crisis, some are saying. And... Um, all the money that's being spent on these emergency temporary provisions, that's money that cannot be spent on long-term permanent housing solutions for folks. And we can't go back in time, unfortunately, and build more housing. Wouldn't that be a lovely thing? Mm -hmm. But this is the situation that we're in right now, unfortunately. And we did see housing advocates releasing their pitch this week to solve homelessness. They want the state to invest more money in permanent supportive housing for people who are experiencing homelessness and um, non-congregate shelters. Do you, do you think that will go anywhere with lawmakers? I think it's really starting the conversation, for sure. And, um, yeah, no, I, I think that the it's really early on in the session to point to, like, very specific um, you know, policies that are definitely going to be achieved. And God knows that for some of these really big debates, most of the action happens at, toward the tail end of the session, frankly, when all the details really matter. Mm -hmm. um, in other big news this week, House lawmakers gave preliminary approval to overdose prevention sites, sometimes called safe injection sites. The controversial issue bringing up strong opinions on both sides under the Golden Dome. Recovery, prevention, education, and treatment. Those are known, proven, evidence-based, best practice, trauma-informed practices. In a year where public safety seems to be at the forefront of our priorities, it is clear that we need to expand our approach to address this. I want my community to stay alive, and I want us in this body to do everything we can to make that happen. Stephen, lawmakers voting 96 to 35 to allow for places where people can consume illicit drugs under medical supervision. What else would this bill do? Yes, and Sarah was there as this was all happening. I mean, it took every bit of two, two and a half hours. The amount of just voices we heard of people stepping up and wanting to give their opinions, because you mentioned it is such a controversial thing. So what this bill does is it creates a pilot program, and it's going to create two safe injection sites or overdose prevention sites across the state. It seems like right now one will be in Burlington, one potentially in Brattleboro. And they cost roughly a million dollars a piece, but that would, the taxpayers would not be on the hook for that. That would be paid for by lawsuits and settlements from the opiate settlement funds and the companies that the state and many other states in the country have been in litigation with. And so that's how they would be paid for. And so how they will actually be run, that was one of the big questions that was raised on the floor, because a lot of that's going to come down to after it gets passed and then will be in the hands of the Department of Health, which a lot of people had issues with. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, we know the governor has said he does not support these sites. Do you see enough momentum in the legislature to override a veto if it comes to that? I think the big question is going to be in the Senate on that one. I think that this is an issue, this is a policy proposal that there's just frankly a real generational divide between folks, whether they are supportive of this or not. 
And um, that's a dynamic that I think can really has the potential to come to the forefront in the Senate. And that has historically been a really narrow supermajority um, for Democrats to override gubernatorial vetoes. So I think it's going to come down to the Senate. Um, the, the other thing on this, though, is that, so like you mentioned, the governor is just categorically against this as a proposal. When we asked him about it at this week's press conference, he said that he just takes issue with the idea of the government. I think the word he used was enabling mm -hmm. drug use. And illegal drug use, too. Illegal drug use. Yes. Because these are federally illegal, technically, under right. the DOJ. Well, so is marijuana. Yes. But, um, but uh, yeah, like um, that. There's this idea that it would enable folks. Well, as uh, the proponents of a bill like this say that this crisis that we're facing in Vermont and nationwide, really, it's not going away. It's only gaining more momentum, and we just got to do something. Like what we're doing is not working. We've got to try something, perhaps really novel, in order to get it under control and save lives. Although I imagine Tim, you know, once you talk about where to cite these locations, you know, within a city like Burlington or a town like Brattleboro, that's when the business community starts going, well, hey, I don't want this next to my store, potentially. Well, we can see that very much so in Burlington, where um, these issues have, you know, maybe driven tourists out of the downtown. Um, they're struggling a little bit with the retail uh, in Burlington. And that's been... Um, uh, obviously, the business community has been, thinks that's a real disservice to what they're they're attempting to do, and the, and it gets back to the public safety, and it's one of the governor's priorities, and actually the legislature I think is really on board on public safety too. It's going to be the biggest issue in the mayoral race in Burlington coming up uh, very very soon too. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, plus there's the just the natural not in my backyard kind of uh, that we all that we all have. Let's face it. Mm -hmm. um, the other kind of interesting thing we saw coming out this week and really just in the last day here on Friday, healthcare reform pitched by lawmakers this morning. Um, we know House Democrats introduced a bill they say would make health care more affordable. Sounds like there's a companion bill in the Senate. Uh, Stephen, what are the details of this bill and how would it reform health care? So, yes, we got that released this morning from health care. So, yeah, it would change some things along with Medicaid. But we have been seeing this going on for years and years in bienniums and sessions across the state of Vermont is that we need a new health care system. We need some change because a lot of people, they're just not on board with what the state has right now. Yeah. And Sarah, you were also looking at this bill, too. Yeah. And so what the bill would do is it wouldn't uh, make Medicaid universal. I talked to Senator Ruth Hardy, the um, prime sponsor of the Senate companion bill, about this this morning. She said that it wouldn't be universal Medicaid, but expanded Medicaid. She kind of equated it to what the legislature did last year with uh, child care um, incentives. And so currently, eligibility for Medicaid in Vermont is you should be making 133% um, of the federal poverty line for uh, a single earner. For just comparison, that's about $20,000. Whereas this bill would raise that amount, um, the income eligibility guidelines for someone to qualify for Medicaid by 2030 to 317% of the federal poverty line, which for one person is uh, $48,000 roundabout. Um, for two people, that would be about $65,000. So it, it would not cover everyone. For comparison, the median family income in Vermont is about $74,000. So it's not everyone by any stretch, really. 
but it would really expand this base of people that would qualify for Medicaid in the state. Is it designed in some ways to offset what we saw um, with the pandemic um, eligibility kind of shrinking, you know, when they expanded the access to Medicaid during the pandemic, and then now it shrank a little bit because the pandemic was over and that emergency was considered over? Is this designed to combat some of that and expand Medicaid access once again? I don't know about that. Okay. I moved here during the pandemic. Okay. It was something we had we had been watching this week, and I said, I wonder if it's a if it's a way to kind of expand some of that. Do we know though how it's being paid for? I think is the other big question. So I don't know the exact mechanics of how. I, I don't think we have even the the numbers at this point for the exact way that they would leverage the money. But in the most broad of terms, state spending is funded by either federal money coming in from Washington, D.C., or from taxes and fees leveraged on citizens or businesses in Vermont. So mm -hmm. we can assume that it would be paid for in probably the, by the latter. Way. And would that, you think, be a sticking point, either of you, when you, what you hear from lawmakers? It would be a sticking point for the governor. He Certainly said over governor. and over yeah. and over he does not want to raise the burden of taxes and fees on Vermonters, and anything that does that He's not going to be for it. Yeah. And I think just generally Vermont is really in this conundrum right now where it's a small state, but it has big issues to face, right? Like every state does. And there's a debate whether Vermont, a tiny state of, say, 650,000 people, can really take on that burden in of itself. And if taxpayers can pay for these really big issues, child care, paid family, medical leave, Medicaid. Um, and the argument that I think proponents make here is that we're paying for it one way or another, whether that's money coming out of your paycheck and you see your taxes going out to the state every two weeks, or if you fall and break your wrist on the ice and have a $10,000 deductible to meet. We're paying for it one way or another. Mm -hmm. And Tim, we've seen a lot of attempts to reform health care over the years. You know, do you think this one has a shot? Uh, uh, frankly, probably not because it's it's linked to Medicaid, and Medicaid's been so woefully underfunded. Um, Medicaid was intended for, as Sarah mentioned, for poor people and for the disabled, and the federal government has really cut back on it. It's been left to the states to a large degree, which is why, uh, unlike Medicare, um, which is which is pretty well funded and it's coming from the federal government, is just not me getting its. It just doesn't, there's just not enough money there, and they want to expand it. They want to expand it to the Obamacare 26 years old, uh, expand Dr. Dinosaur to 26, which is the, the Obamacare. Um, so I don't see where this money's going to come from. And it's going to be very, I mean, the minutiae seems pretty straightforward, frankly. You know, you're going to do this, this, and this. But then they say, well, we have to put more money into Medicaid reimbursement because the, the, um, the medical providers are not getting the money they need um, to serve a proper, appropriately serve the, um, Medicaid patients. So that that's the other. There's another funding part to it is is you know backfilling um, what is being shortchanged now. I think it's going to be. I think the the idea is is really good, but I just don't see how it's going to get paid for. Mm -hmm. And is that a conversation that will be happening later this session? Are they going? Is that something we expect to hear down the line, or is it something they're going to pass and then try to figure it out? I think we're going to continue hearing about this. You know, what's really interesting, I was just last night watching the CNN docu-series on the 90s, and I watched the Bill Clinton episode, which is a very fast hour of television. Mm -hmm. And there is a segment on uh, the Clinton administration's health care plan for mm -hmm. universal health care. And watching some of the rallies that were happening 25 years ago, 
they looked like rallies that I have covered. The signs were the same, the chants were the same. It was either healthcare is a human right, healthcare for all, or um, no socialized medicine, get the government out of my doctor's office. So this is a, an issue that has been heavily debated longer than I've been alive. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon, federal or state level. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a, a like a it should be the first year of the biennium kind of discussion and instead of just like, we've got to rush to the finish line here. That's a good point. And I think that that could be a dynamic that could come at play for sure, that maybe this gets punted to next year. Perhaps, I don't know, it's still early in the session. Mm -hmm. uh, the first bill that did fully clear the House this session aims to take on domestic violence. Sarah, you were telling me the political dynamics of this one were interesting, how so? So what was interesting politically about this one is that the vote fell along party lines. Um, every single no vote, all of the 31 representatives who voted against this bill were Republicans. This bill is, um, what it would do is expand the definition of domestic violence to include coercive and controlling behavior for the purpose of granting abuse prevention orders to survivors of domestic violence. And so what advocates say is that uh, domestic violence often starts before it gets physical. It starts with controlling or threatening or, you know, telling your partner how they can spend their money or freezing their bank account or taking their phone or following them or all of these many, many very psychologically and emotionally damaging behaviors are kind of the precursor oftentimes to actual physical violence. But in Vermont right now, you cannot get an abuse prevention order in civil court until you can prove that you've been physically harmed by your partner. And so what lawmakers are trying to do with this bill is get into that situation before it turns physical, before any punches are thrown to say these people should be separated and the court needs to get involved in this. Um, and why it's interesting politically is, like I said, it was Republicans who voted um, against this bill in a, in a concerted block. The, the caucus voted against it. I talked to uh, the lead on this bill, uh, Representative Angela Arsenault, yesterday, and she says she was very sad to see 31 of her colleagues go on the record, vote against this bill. She said, I don't understand this. Um, in a session where we're really talking about public safety, this is one of the most pervasive and hardest to solve public safety issues. She said that she thinks that this is a way to prevent violence before it starts, and uh, Republicans voted against that. Why did they vote against it? Did they give you a sense? No one talked to me. Uh, none of the representatives I called picked up the phone before I published my story, and none of them gave an explanation on the floor of their votes. Okay. Um, Tim, not the news taxpayers wanted to hear. They'll be on the hook for $16.5 million in EB-5 fraud settlement money. That's the massive Ponzi scheme to rebuild J. Peak, Burke Mountain, and Newport with foreign investor money that ended up being the state's largest fraud case ever. Investors sued the state, saying it intentionally kept quiet about the misused money, and Vermont had been hoping that their insurance would cover the settlement, but then the state's insurance agent, AIG, denied the claim. Tim, were you surprised by that? Um, no, just the way it played, the whole situation played out in September. The settlement came through. It was a, a bar order, which means no one else can, can sue on, in this case. Um, it sort of settles everything. The state clearly didn't want to get into a long civil case. They would have had to extend the, um, uh, the arbitration with AIG. That was not, they didn't want to do that. So AIG paid $850,000 to to the state to say this is sort of cover legal fees to this point. Um, the rest of the money, almost 16 million will be into the uh, budget adjustment as I understand it. And so basically for this year, so basically it's already 
been budgeted and will be paid by the taxpayers. Um, it, it seems, uh, on the one side, it seems like the state, you know, we're getting on, uh, getting close to the eight-year anniversary here in April mm -hmm. of uh, 2016, that the state cut off fairly easy on this. 16.5 million is a lot of money to the state of Vermont, but not in the grand scheme of, of two, the $200 million fraud right. we were talking about. Yeah. Um, speaking of money, uh, back to the legislature, always a conversation that turns heads, the subject of lawmaker pay. Back in the State House this session, lawmakers are pitching a pay raise again with some changes after the governor vetoed their last proposal. Stephen, what is different this time around? Yeah, this time around, it seems like salaries are a lot more compared to the average Vermont salary compared to how the last time around last year would have nearly doubled um, the pay of lawmakers. But also with this one, there's not health care involved, such as there was with the last one. Committee chairs and party leaders would make roughly 100 percent more than they are making right now. And so once again, it's really just going to be last time. It seemed like it was a lot of votes along party lines as it was making its way through because the governor is not for increasing their pay at all. He'd rather shorten the session to 90 days. Ideally, Republicans a lot of times just follow suit with him with that. And so we'll really have to see where this one goes this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sarah, there was that other bill that would slash the pay of the governor and members of his administration. Um, sounds like that one's a bill that's trying to make a point but not likely to go anywhere. Yeah, I talked to the, the prime sponsor of that bill, Senator Vyhovsky, about that. And she was pretty clear-eyed on the, the chances of it actually making it to the finish line. But she said that she wanted to start the conversation that um, while Vermont legislators are among the lowest paid in the country I think the fifth lowest yeah. don't quote me on it um, whereas the governor is the fifth highest paid governor in the country she um, said that those are not co-equal branches of government that the the compensation sends a message um, and so she wanted to make a point she said she hopes to at least get a hearing on that bill to start the conversation Got it. The Vermont media world got a shakeup this week. Radio Vermont announced on Thursday that it's selling its radio assets, including WDEV, to Mermel and McLean Management LLC out of Manchester, Vermont. Former Republican U.S. Senate candidate and former Ethan Allen Institute director Myers Mermel of Manchester will be the new owner-operator. And Scott Milne, businessman and former Republican gubernatorial candidate, is an investor. Um, very quickly here, 30 seconds, Tim. It's a big change, and it doesn't come too long after longtime owner Ken Squire passed away. Yeah, he just uh, died this fall. Um, it'd been on, it's been for sale, actually, before he, he died, so they had to make it through. But uh, no format changes or personnel changes that we know of. Mm -hmm. And that is Vermont This Week. Thanks to our panel, Tim McQuiston from Vermont Business Magazine, Stephen Vittix from WPTZ, and Vermont Diggers' Sarah Mirhoff. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you all for watching. Take care, everyone.